Welcome to Now Appalachia. The Appalachian region covers 13 states in the U.S. and over 25 million people call the region home. This podcast profiles the authors and publishers with connections to Appalachia and how the region influences and impacts their creative work. And now, here's your host, author and Appalachian resident, Elliot Parker. And hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Now Appalachia. You are listening to the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, and our program now, Appalachia, continues to profile those outstanding authors with connections to the Appalachian region and how the region influences and impacts their works. Great to have you with us. I'm your host, Elliot Parker, and I am delighted to welcome a repeat guest back to the program who has not been with us since our very first year of doing these podcast episodes way back in 2016, 2017, and that is Wendy Welsh, but she is out with a brand new book on a very topical issue that uh, is, is somewhat focused in nature, but has a lot more broader implications in terms of issues concerning healthcare and Appalachia. The title of her new book is called Masks, Misinformation, and Making Do. The subtitle is Appalachian Healthcare Workers and the COVID-19 Pandemic. And this book is a collection of narratives, mainly by frontline healthcare providers, but also administrators and educators in Appalachia who were burdened uh, already with healthcare challenges when COVID-19 hit back in 2020. And this book really goes into great detail about how government and corporate policies both uh, exacerbated sort of the region's social injustices, stopped response efforts from being effective, and also increased the death toll as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. So a lot to get to uh, with Wendy Welch today. She joins us as the Executive Director of the Southwest Virginia Graduate Medical Education Consortium, and she's also the author, co-author, or editor of six books, including Fall or Fly, The Strangely Hopeful Story of Foster Care and Adoption in Appalachia, which was published by Ohio University Press. She advocates for social justice and healthcare and other critical areas of development across Appalachia, and she's brought us a terrific new book that takes us inside, behind the scenes of what happened during the COVID-19 pandemic, but again, underlines a lot of the other issues we've got going on uh, currently uh, with healthcare in Appalachia. So Wendy, welcome back to the show. You were with us our our first season all those years ago, and it's great to have you back with this new book. How are you? Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Yeah, I think we were in the back of a bookstore the first time. I was the writer in residence at Lafayette Flats, and you were uh, there in Morgantown, maybe? Um, Huntington, yeah. Huntington. Huntington. And uh, yeah, we had a grand time because we were talking books. Every time we'd look around, we'd see another title that one of us had read and we were just going back and forth on it. It was great. It was great. Yes, it was. I'm so glad. I'm so glad to have you back on the program and and your book, Masks, Information and Making Do. Before we get into some of the specifics about the book, how did this project come together? When did the idea come together? How did it come together? When did you decide it was time to, to write this book and to put this information together? This is one of the two fastest proposals I have ever sent. I sent Ohio University Press two proposals, and I said, um, would you like to do a book on opioids and other substances in the frontline crisis? And and I got an email back 10 minutes later saying yes. But this one I sent... Um, Basically, to Rick Hurd, who I had worked with at that point, and and we knew each other well and understood each other's uh, working styles well, and I said, there are a lot of stories not getting told inside the healthcare system, and there are a lot of 
the signs going up that says heroes work here and then people are spray painting them and um, gaslighting the nurses and just being difficult in these trying times. It doesn't help to become a difficult person. We need to celebrate what has been done by these people who are basically holding civilization together right now. I was really thinking of the nurses at that point, but there were other things uh, related to that with how we were educating our residents because they weren't allowed into the COVID wards and you can't just stop educating doctors or the whole stream shuts down, you know? And there were other stories about um, the why we were in so much trouble in the first place in Appalachia. I mean, you and I have talked before about how the hospitals were already in dire straits. They were um, tight on funding and short on staff before the pandemic hit. And suddenly they were trying to literally make do with almost nothing because they were shut down and we didn't have a COVID stream for several months. The patterns were different in urban and rural areas. So by the time the rest of the country was starting to go, okay, we got this. We know how to do it. The vaccines are coming. Appalachia was just entering its first lethal wave. It was terrible because the hospitals had just started reopening and it hit. It was it was like the perfect storm. If everything, whatever could go wrong, did go wrong. And it wasn't the people. They were they were working very hard. They were trying to care for their patients. And the administration was doing the best they could with the information they had. But in many cases, the information lagged reality. So it was, it really was a perfect storm. Take me back to healthcare in Appalachia for just a second, because I know you and I have talked about this a lot over the years. Yeah. And, you know, my mom was a nurse for a number of years uh, in, in Charleston. And so, she, I, you know, she she was on the that wasn't on the front lines of COVID, but was on the front lines of, of so many of the healthcare challenges on a day to day basis that she saw from Appalachians. But it, I think, you know, oftentimes when we talk about healthcare in Appalachia, one of the first sort of snapback comments that a politician or somebody who's not familiar with the region will will say is well it's because the region's so isolated and because you've got all you've got you've got you've got hollows and you've got you know mountain communities that are isolated but you know I know you write about this some in the book and we'll get to it in a minute but I, I know you feel this way also that it's more than that 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 the the problems with healthcare in Appalachia it's not just isolation what do you see as, as the reasons that we find Appalachia continually uh suffering with what with healthcare challenges, aside from just being sort of rural and isolated from, from major cities and, and access to those hospitals? So the cheap shot and simple answer would be corporate greed, but of course we're not going to go there. We're going to take our time and we're going to develop the story carefully. Um, when you have a healthcare system that has, oh, 14 hospitals in it, it's going to be cheaper to deliver specialty care in one location. And since your 14 hospitals are all part of the same system, to deliver care in one location makes sense on paper. When you realize, especially if you're you know, solicitous of your population and you put that central hospital as the specialty care for moms in trouble giving birth or people who fall off roofs and, and need immediate back assistance. If you put the specialty care in the central location, the people on the periphery are still going to be driving two, three hours to get to you. But on the bottom line, economically, um, 
it makes it cheaper to deliver the care, particularly where it's procedure driven. Um, hospitals make their income from procedures. They don't make income from diagnosing. They make income from going in and fixing it surgically, from getting you to PT, from from the ways in which you recover, the, the care that you receive as a follow-up to your diagnosis, the procedures is a driving force in, in economics and hospitals. So it, you also, oh, how can I put this? If, if you need to take care of five people in one hospital and 50 people in another hospital, you can still assign one nurse per five beds. And it sounds like it's going to be more expensive in the larger hospital. But the things that the nurse is using, the consumables that she has access to, can be bought and stored in bulk and they won't expire. And they can um, get access faster to assistance if they need it. It is more expensive to deliver smaller amounts of care than it is to deliver care on mass. Very well said. Very well said. And I, I wanted to, to mention one thing, and then we'll get into some of the individual stories that are in the book, which are just fantastic and terrific. Um, you know, one of the things you, you talk about around page 62, 63, 64 is the rise of telehealth. And I know mm -hmm. people that have been following sort of the, the, the postmortem that the healthcare industry has been doing on uh, COVID after the aftermath of COVID. One of the things that it's, it's talked about, uh, and you write about this, is telehealth, the, the ability to consult a doctor for these folks that are living in rural Appalachia that, you know, it's 80 miles to the nearest clinic or it's 80 miles to the nearest you know, trauma one hospital, or it's, it's, you know, 160 miles to the first oncologist they can find. You write a lot about um, um, telehealth. And I, I just want to read a couple quotes here and, and ask you about, you know, sort of the, the federal government's role in this, because you write about, about Medicare. And I found this striking because again, you know, my mother was a nurse for a number of years in Charleston, West Virginia. She's on Medicare now. Uh, she's at that pet phase in her life where she's, you know, being very, you know, being very cautious about her health, but is also going to more appointments now than she did uh, in her younger years. But you write about this, you say nearly half of all Medicare primary care visits were via telehealth uh, in April. Um, now, now, this is uh, April, uh, I believe, 2019, 2020, somewhere around then. Um, so about 2019, 2020, half the Medicare primary care visits were telehealth. Based on early experience with Medicare primary care, telehealth at the start of the COVID-19 public health emergency, the telehealth flexibilities played a critical role in helping to maintain access to primary health care services. And then you also say that the stable and sustained use of telehealth after an in-person primary care visit resumed, uh, and that suggests that maybe th there's a bigger demand for telehealth. So, but my question is, is is Medicare, Medicaid, these government insurance programs, maybe even what we call the Affordable Care Act insurance or Obamacare that people can buy on the exchanges, are they going to get behind telehealth? Because I feel like we've seen so often for so many years that whether it's prescription drug prices or it's the latest, uh, it's the latest technology to treat uh, an illness, it seems like Medicare and Medicaid especially are so slow to get on board with that and provide the, the reimbursements to doctors and hospitals to provide that care. Is it going to be different this time with telehealth or, or do you see it uh, as something that uh, Medicare and Medicaid and these government insurance programs can pivot to quickly? 
it already is different. Um, the, the short version is they 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 got behind it and they got behind it fast in April and May of 2020. Now, the quote you've re read there is by Kathy Wibberley. And actually, the information that I was telling you about the hospitals and why they were in trouble already is from the opening article in the book, which is by Beth O'Connor, which when I was soliciting articles, I went to Kathy Wibberley because if you think telehealth, you think Kathy. And um, Beth runs the Virginia Rural Health Association, and there isn't anything she doesn't know about the economics of delivering healthcare in rural areas. So I solicited them as experts in their fields. And we've also been, you know, friends and colleagues meeting up at conferences for over a decade now. So that's how we got those voices in the book. And Kathy's voice is very authoritative on healthcare. One of the things she said to me, and and like all of us, she just wanted to be really careful that it wasn't misconstrued. She said, if there is one good thing that came out of the pandemic, it is how quickly government regulation pivoted on telehealth. Um, there were, I think, no fewer than four. Well, she's got them listed in the article. I don't want to list the number of bills, but bills that removed four major barriers very quickly. Um, the right to have insurance pay uh, for a telehealth visit was already up for grabs. Medicare and Medicaid opened very quickly to that. I, again, we go back to the procedure-driven versus the diagnosis nature of healthcare. You can diagnose on telehealth pretty easily. Now, asking a patient to you know suture themselves under your care and instruction from 400 miles away on a camera—that's not going to fly. But okay, you know, show me your tongue. Tell me what it feels like inside your mouth. Um, these kinds of diagnosing techniques are pretty straightforward. And during COVID, they were essential. Stay home. You know, we're, we're telling patients, stay home, stay home. Oh, you need to come to the hospital. Um, this, this was a, I'm not going to say it was a godsend for telehealth, but just that a lot of the barriers where the, the sense of isolation that politicians ascribe correctly or incorrectly to Appalachia was suddenly felt by everyone in America. We were all isolated and all of a sudden a whole bunch of people understood things that they didn't understand before about how medicine could be delivered. So every cloud has a silver lining. Yeah, very well said. Very well said. And uh, the second part of the book, I, I really love because you, you label it part two or it is labeled part two stories. And there's mm -hmm. just so many wonderful stories in here by healthcare providers, administrators, everybody kind of involved on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic. And what I found so great about the stories was it, it was written almost in real time. If we think back to those moments when COVID was was hitting and we were seeing those images and pictures on TV of, of patients in hospitals, when you're reading these stories, you can almost picture yourself there. But also when you step back now, two years later, as we've kind of moved, moved in a different phase of COVID, um, it's really interesting because I think there's some philosophical sort of uh, big picture items that are there. Um, an example, one of my favorite ones in the collection was a Shadrach, Sparrows, and Me by Tara Smith. And, and she talks about, um, you know, being a doctor as a powerful responsibility. What happens when uh, ethical and protective responsibilities during an outbreak like COVID stop becoming philosophical? 
and and, and you kind of have to uh, you, you know there's a reckoning after that when it stops becoming philosophical. But but there's just so such a variety of different kinds of stories written in different voices from different uh, people. How did you go about soliciting those? How how did you know who to reach out to? who to ask? Did you give them topics that you wanted them to write about? Or did you just say, hey, write me, write an essay about or a narrative about your experience uh, during COVID and then compile them that way? How did you reach out to these folks? How did you get the stories back that were included in that section? Well, the one you're mentioning now was actually harder to get than one of the most difficult stories in the book. One, One of the most difficult stories to help people understand is the one called Nursing While Black. And the whole concept that we were going to talk about racism during a pandemic that was supposed to be the great equalizer was really interesting. Now, let's go back to Tara for a minute, because what I actually did um, was break a taboo. You never ask a doctor a question they don't know the answer to. You never ask a doctor if they're afraid. You, You know, we don't let doctors be mortals. It's not okay in America for a doctor to be immortal. So I went to one of the residency directors who is, again, someone I've known for a decade, a really good friend. I trusted her. And I said, tell me who would do an honest job of writing what it's like to be a first year trainee doctor at this time in their life. And she said, I had a name for you. And Tara and I connected and she wrote a very honest and vivid portrayal of not only fear, but ineffectiveness of, of frustration at not knowing how to do things um, because it was a, a novel virus of her concern for her elderly patients, of her own um, sense of inadequacy because uh, she got put in quarantine um, after she and her mother got bad advice about going on a cruise. Oh, go, it's fine. So April, 2020, they're on a cruise ship. They're on one of those famous princess cruise ships that gets quarantined. And she thinks, you know, she, she, she thinks at best she's hurt her profession and she's going to be off duty for several weeks. And at worst that she's harmed her mother. She's, she's terrified. It, it's, it's, it's a very honest and, surprisingly heartwarming uh, story because Tara has a lot of faith too. And she, she turns to her faith very quickly when she's uh, in these situations that she's never dealt with before. And then the article nursing while black, I, I knew that finding nurses to talk about what was happening in the COVID wards was going to be hard because there was a hefty lockdown on news (laughs) coming out of the the larger healthcare systems who, who wants to talk about how awful things are, you know, and, you know, healthcare heroes work here. Don't ask any questions about that. So I started uh, a a private group online, uh, just friends talking to friends, nothing to do with the job, you know? Um, And we called it 96 BBs because the, the women uh, were all nurses. And we said, there's not going to be, a huge silver bullet. There's going to be all of us fighting the misinformation day by day, piece by piece, pellet by pellet. And nobody's ever going to believe that we're the all powerful people who will change this, but we will piece by piece, grain by grain, day by day, because we'll be the 96 BBs instead of the big silver bullet. So it was kind of a joke, but it got 
more meaningful as, as the pandemic wore on. And on there were some nurses who knew of colleagues who had witnessed firsthand what was happening in the divisions between black and white patients in some of the hospitals and between black and white staff in some of the hospitals. Um, that nurse writes eloquently about being passed over for a PPE fitting, um, about um, acquiring COVID because she ran into a room where a man was coding um, because no one else was going and about the colors involved in the patients that she saw receiving different levels of care. And that is a hard, hard story to tell. Um, she is the only person in the book who writes under a pseudonym. And I, as the editor, I mean, you understand as an author, we have responsibility to tell stories. There's the journalism side, there's the storytelling side, there's the authenticity side, but then there's also the responsibility to people you solicit to write. And I worried every day she was going to get in trouble. She didn't. And she now works for a completely different system in a completely different location. But yeah, I mean, she really opened up a vein. She just, she just sat down at the computer and opened up a vein and told us what it was like. In fact, the editor at uh, Rick, the editor at, at Ohio University Press, he, he asked me a whole bunch of questions about that article. And at the end, he said, this is just I can't believe this is happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very good. It's it's a powerful, poignant essay, and I hope everyone will will check it out when they look at the collection. The, the title of the book we're talking about today on this episode of Now Appalachia is Masks, Misinformation, and Making Do, Appalachian Healthcare Workers and the COVID-19 Pandemic. We're joined by editor Wendy Welsh, who edited and collected uh, this outstanding book of data and essays. So, Wendy, we'll come back to the book in just a second. I wanted to ask you, uh, you mentioned Ohio University Press a couple of times that you sent them two proposals. How did, how did you choose them? Why did you choose them? Uh, and what was it like working with them on this kind of a project with, with, with so much powerful kind of poignant storytelling involved and, and, and getting it sort of honed down into, uh, into a manageable size book? Uh, how did you reach out to them? What was sort of the writing, editing, publishing process like working with them? Um, I knew them because they're now retired uh, chief editor Jillian Bergovitz had reached out to me when I was launching a blog of um, foster care stories that turned into um, Fall or Fly. She reached out to me and said, would you like to do a book on this? So after that, um, when she was getting ready to retire, she basically passed me off to Rick and said, hey, keep a hold of her. She's got some stories to tell. And when I said the opioid the substance use book it, it's really substance use it's not just opioids there's a whole lot of meth and a whole lot of anyone who works in substance use disorder in southwest virginia will tell you it's like playing whack-a-mole when you reduce one thing another thing rises so it is substance use disorder not opioids and it need it was a story that needed to be told it was a story that was being told about us without our voices in it and that wasn't okay so getting the doctors to talk directly and the nurses and the um, therapists to talk directly about what they saw and how they saw it was really important to me. Um, people will debate methodology and they will debate um, ethics as those, those aren't real people we're talking about. And the people that wrote those pieces 
they had all shed tears over the beds of people they couldn't save. And I have nothing but praise for how they told those stories and to Ohio University Press for giving them that platform, because those are stories that should have Appalachian accents when they're told. Very well said. Very well said. So what are some things you like to read when, when you're not dealing with, with <laughs> healthcare issues and, and, and uh, putting collections of great work like this together that's, that's extremely timely and important? What, what are some things you like to read if you're just going to put, you know, just a pass, a pass by a rainy Saturday afternoon or something like that? What are some genres you like to read, authors you like to read? <laughs> I like what used to be referred to as chiclet. Now it's called latte lit because we don't say chiclet anymore. I like stories about women who go on quirky adventures. I love any story that's set in India. I don't care what it's about. I don't know why. I just love stories set in India. Um, and I read a lot of fiction. Um, my, my nighttime reading is fiction. Now, you know, my job requires me to keep up with, with many trends and, and ideas. And I do a lot of reading. I, I read a brilliant book called Immune, which I highly recommend. It's, it's like a learned doctor sits you down on his knee and tells you a story about viruses and how they work, but he's talking to you like you're his grandkid. It's just a lovely book. Um, and I read Fascism by Madeleine Albright because I wasn't depressed enough during the pandemic. And <laughs> Then, there, then there's a, a new book, book that came out in 2021. It is. It is an awesome book. And it actually informed some of the work that I'm doing now. I'm I'm writing volume two with my co-authors on the COVID conspiracy theory volume we did, which was not with Ohio. It was with McFarland. This next one, I think, is going to be with the University of Wisconsin. And talking about misinformation and how it has become, it's always been a political tool, but everything is accelerated um, across the great divide and across the, the pandemic years. And so I was reading it as a background to, to be better informed in writing my part of the COVID conspiracy theory or that, well, a conspiracy theory book that we're working on now after um, it's not specific to COVID like the first one was. Then I also read a book called, um, yeah, I actually cannot recall the exact name of it and that's a terrible thing, but it's about, who got rich during the pandemic and how they did it. And if you want your blood to boil, you should look that book up. I, I think it's called Pandemic Inc. It might be called that. Yeah, um, yeah it's called Pandemic Inc. And it is a real blood burner about all the things that people did knowing that they were doing something that was designed incredibly to make them rich and not to help anyone. This was not, oops, I made a mistake. This was set out to bamboozle stuff. And it was uh, kind of terrifying. Yeah, so sounds that way. I'm trying to work the system for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. We're speaking with uh, editor Wendy Welsh here today on Now Appalachia. She's the title of the brand new book out from Ohio University Press. It's called Masks, Misinformation and Making Do, Appalachian Healthcare Workers and the COVID-19 Pandemic. And Wendy, uh, back to the book for just a couple more questions as we finish up. If If someone was to pick up your book and flip to the story section, Maybe they only had time to read one story immediately. What's the first one you would recommend if they were to, to come to the collection and they wanted to dive into the narratives from the different writers and they had to start with one? What, what's one that you think they should they should pick up and tackle first? Um, the one about masks. Um, uh, Melanie and uh, Mimi, um, I <laughs> They're like two peas in a pod and they have names that are so similar, but I actually keep juxtaposing their last names. So Melanie and Mimi. Um, wrote the 
article on mask where they interviewed a bunch of Appalachian women and it, it drifted into misinformation because the women, and I remember this too, I was on that Appalachian studies list, AppleNet, trying to solicit mask makers. And this guy's coming on there telling everybody not to make masks. They don't work, that this is a crock. And I'm like, what the? It, it was really frustrating because when medical professionals tell you they want something and you try to get it for them, it, misinformation is your number one enemy. And I think Mimi and Melanie handled that really well, along with the way all these women basically set to to do the right thing. The old, you know, Appalachian granny woman, nothing gets her down, nothing's getting in her way forward. One woman was hand sewing masks because she couldn't find a sewing machine. They sold out at Walmart, you know, like everything else in the pandemic. Um, so that one I think is absolutely lovely. And I think it's uniquely Appalachian in a way that's quickly accessible and affirming in the same way that I think nursing while black is very Appalachian, but not affirming, it's exposing. Then I, I really like Tara's, of course, but I'll tell you, Lynn Elliott, the director of the residency programs at Johnson Memorial Hospital in Abingdon, she wrote a beautiful piece called Passover about the combination of furloughs and fear that she was watching happen in her healthcare system and the the maternal instincts that rose in her toward her residents at the time and how to keep them safe and keep them learning as months stretched into years how to how to help them but without harming them and at the same time letting them do their jobs it was almost like a mother's love having to let go very well said and finally wendy uh as we finish up a lot of good information in here, powerful storytelling, as we've talked about, and, and you featured some of them, and we, we've talked about them. We've read a couple excerpts of, of data from the collection. When a reader gets to the last page, they close the final uh, page, they close the back jacket of the book. What is a, a final impression or final thought or uh, sort of a final residence you hope they take away from the book when the time they get finished? What do you hope they step away from and they say, okay, I've, I've read this. Uh, I've seen these stories. I've read the insights from the people that were on the front lines. What do you hope they take away from your book after they get to the last page and close the back cover? How complicated it was, how it was so many layers pushed together and how everyone had to navigate between their own conscience, what they had available to them and what they were told they had to do, even when they didn't think it was the right thing to do. Uh, there's an article, if it's not the last one, it's almost the last one, Rakesh Patel um, wrote about vaccines. He was one of the people we solicited at the last minute. You know, we were looking for the experts up front and then we, we realized we really needed something about the vaccines because they were gonna be there by the time the book came out. And Rakesh talked about people refusing vaccination with such grace and kindness. And he talked about patient sovereignty. And he talked about getting COVID from a patient and saying, I, you know, I, I signed on for this. I signed on to let people have their own medical sovereignty, even when I think they're making the wrong decision. Doesn't mean that I can't be persuasive, doesn't mean that I can't try to help them understand and answer all their questions, of course. But in the end, 
that where we had divided up again that you know this will work this won't work you people are stupid if you don't get vaccinated you people are sheep if you do rakish kind of walked down the middle of that and said i'm a doctor i think you should get vaccinated if you choose not to get vaccinated you have exercised your own authority and your authority belongs to you and that grace i think is part of the complicated picture, but I hope they take away that grace because it wasn't just Rakish that was showing that. It's just that he showed it in a very particularly messy situation. So did the the woman who wrote um, Nursing While Black. So did the residents who were navigating their own fear. So did the people who were trying to keep the economics rolling, which isn't you know as heroic feeling, but it was the same thing. Everyone was trying to keep their part of the world stitched together with black jelly beans and duct tape and they were doing it they did it very good and final question for you wendy if anyone wants to get in contact with you stay in contact with you uh, about this book and about the second volume that you're currently working on how can they stay in contact with you how can they reach out to you and then where can they get copies of the book the easiest way to get me is on my blog um it's a uh, wendy-welch.com um it's also called um books yarn cats and opioids life's little joys and big troubles <laughs> so they can if they google my name it's going to come up and it's really easy to keep up with me through, through the blog there are also other contact details on the blog that they can get a hold of um and if they want to get the book of course ohio university press direct uh, on their website is an easy way to order it you can order it from the big A, but as the former owner of a bookstore, I think you should support your local bookstore or get it directly from Ohio University Press because that matters. The title of the book we've been talking about here today on Now Appalachia is a great, great book. It is just recently published uh, by Ohio University Press. It's called Masks, Misinformation, and Making Do, Appalachian Healthcare Workers and the COVID-19 Pandemic. Our guest today has been Editor Wendy Welsh. She is the Executive Director of the Southwest Virginia Graduate Medical Education Consortium and also the author, co-author, and editor of six books, including Fall or Fly, The Strangely Hopeful Story of Foster Care, as well as Adoption in Appalachia, also published by Ohio University Press. Wendy, you've given us a, a great book on a timely topic that we're still grappling with today. And we're looking back and trying to learn lessons from. And I think folks who uh, were interested in this, experienced this on whatever level, maybe they were a frontline healthcare worker, maybe they were the, the, the son or daughter or spouse of someone who was ill and in the hospital during this time. Maybe they've lived in Appalachia for a long time and struggled with healthcare uh, concerns. Uh, no matter where you fall on the spectrum, I think you've given us uh, some really great scholarship and insight uh, into not only COVID-19 pandemic, but also just healthcare in Appalachia. So congratulations on the book. It was a terrific read. And when you get that second volume out, we'd love to have you back on the program to talk about it. Thanks for, thanks for the conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. We want to take a moment as we finish up on this episode of Now Appalachia to give a special shout out to the executive producer of our program. Her name is Pam Stack. She makes this podcast and all the podcasts that you hear on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network possible. So we couldn't do it without her. So Pam, thanks for all of your help and support. We also want to remind you that this is a copyrighted podcast that is owned and operated by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. That is going to do it for us this time on Now Appalachia, but please come again next time. And in the meantime, stay well and see you someplace soon, I hope.
You've been listening to Now Appalachia. This is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. For questions or comments about this program, and to learn more about the host, Elliot Parker, and his books, visit his website at www.elliotparker.com. Stay tuned. More outstanding podcasts are coming your way next from the authors on the Air Global Radio Network.